Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Alex Poole is a general surgeon in Whitehorse, Yukon. He has had a fascinating career working in many remote locations. And in this episode, we talked to him about what it's like to practice surgery in a remote community, his work on frostbite injuries, and the deadliest animal in the Canadian North. Well, Dr. Poole, thank you very much for uh, for being on the podcast with us. Uh, we know how busy you are and how crazy the times are <laughs> with our friend, the Covey. Um, so thanks for that. For, for those listeners who may not uh, know you personally, um, Tell us a bit about where you grew up and what your training pathway was. So I grew up in a small town in Quebec on the shores of the St. Lawrence River called Bay Como. Uh, no relation to a former prime minister from the same place. And I was the son of a, uh, a full-purpose general surgeon. Uh, and I had no idea at the time that I would end up being a general surgeon myself. As most kids in small Quebec towns, I went out to CGEP, which is sort of junior college after grade 11, thought I was going to be an engineer, went to Waterloo, did an engineering degree, and one of my work terms was in a biomechanics lab in Toronto, and that piqued my interest in medicine. So then I went to medical school, and lo and behold, enjoyed my surgery rotations, and eventually went into general surgery and ended up in Whitehorse through a somewhat circuitous route, but there had been a long-time true general surgeon in the Yukon who recently just retired, Dave Story, who um, mm. would would take a few podcasts, I think, to discuss yeah. Dave Story's yeah. career. Big red, but he no trained, doubt. yeah, he trained in Calgary, and that's how I came up here for an elective, and I've been returning ever since. Gotcha. Where, where did you go to medical school? Calgary. So I did Calgary did medical school yeah. in Calgary and residency in Calgary. Gotcha. Yeah, Dave Story is a is a true legend. I think certainly across Western Canada. What what was it like to to follow in his footsteps? Uh, it was fantastic. He was a great mentor to me, and uh, taught me a lot. And no one will ever think that I have a broad based practice. That's the the fault of Dave. Because whenever somebody thinks that I do more than most general surgeons typically do, Dave will go, "He doesn't do anything." Because I, uh, you know, I limited my orthopedics to a simple plating, simple fractures, and not doing IM nails, and so Dave thought I wasn't really doing much. So he um, he did full spectrum for years, often by himself, and so um, standing on the shoulder of a giant, I think now is uh, true for what my broad based practice in Whitehorse is like. It sounds like you've been uh, working in a lot of interesting and amazing places, uh, not just Whitehorse. How, how did you? What other places have you worked, and how did you end up in Whitehorse? So I initially went to work in a small town in BC, Nelson, BC, and then for a variety of reasons, they regionalized surgery to a, a town that was too far away to live and work in Nelson at the same time. So I first came to Whitehorse as a locum, and the practice pattern that historically had been set up in Whitehorse prior to me coming was 
at that time, a solo surgeon, two solo surgeons working a variety of schedules on and off. We've sort of settled on two weeks on, two weeks off, and there's four of us now. So in your off periods, you potentially can do administrative work, research work, hang out with your family, or do locums in other places, which some of us have done either to continue our medical education or to go to interesting places and help out. So I have done um, locums in a variety of northern areas as well, because I do like the broad-based northern practice. I did a locum in Iqaluit, which was very interesting. This is about 15 years ago. And it was very much a different place than Whitehorse. I mean, it's equally as north, but far more remote. And so um, it was a fascinating practice. Working with the Inuit people was great at the time. I think anyone over 40 needed a translator, which led to some interesting translations. The one that I can remember most clearly was I was seeing an Inuit elder in the office who by definition would be a hunter. And I... I, uh, most of the interview had been uh, quite short responses, so I would ask the tra- I would ask him a, a question. The translator would uh, pass it on to him. He'd answer very briefly, and then I had said something, and there was a very long discussion between he and the translator. And I, um, I said, "What? What was that all about? What did I do?" And she says, "He doesn't know what organ abdomen is. He wants you to be more specific." And so I realized that when you're dealing with a hunter, and this is what I've learned in the North, that they tend to know their anatomy if they're butchering their own meat. And so you have to be very specific or they think that maybe you don't know what you're talking about. Wow. That's that's fascinating, eh? Um, Alex, let, let me ask you a bit of a tangential question for sure. But you, you're for sure a, 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 you know, a deep-seated family guy. How How does your family – I don't mean this in a negative way, but how does your family – um, I enjoy the ride and, and, and go to these interesting places with you and whether it's going from BC to Whitehorse or just the whole, the whole voyage. Uh, well, my wife certainly enjoys it and she's a peripatetic artist. So at times we've uh, moved the family to various places for her and I've commuted to my mm. um, remote practices. So there, it's been a bit of a 50, 50 split who gets to decide where the home base is. And I've continued to work in Whitehorse because of that, and we we have lived here full time at times as well, and so the boys um, have been in many different schools. We have two boys, and they um, they've been pretty understanding. It's a bit of a challenge now that they're teenagers to move them around, but so much of their social life is online that they've been able to do it. So, in some ways, they were ready for social isolation because they've lived it sometimes before. But it's given us great opportunities, which is the the beauty of the two weeks on, two weeks off pattern that we have in Whitehorse, because we've I've commuted to Whitehorse from a variety of places, uh, including uh, Nelson, B.C., Halifax, St. John's, Newfoundland, and Iceland. Can you tell us what, from your point of view, the, the some of the great benefits of working in a smaller community are, maybe what are some of the challenges, uh, in particular, what's it like, you know, for those of us who are city boys and continue to be so... What's it? What's it like when you're in the community and you're you're buying groceries or you're in the hardware store and you run into uh, you know all, presumably all these patients on a relatively regular basis? Yeah, the the pros certainly outweigh the cons. I think that as far as running into patients, it's not that often that you run into patients and you both want to acknowledge that they were your patient. So I I tend to have to. 
I, if it's someone I don't know socially already, I won't say anything because they may not want the other people around to know why they know me. Sure. That being said, people who I, I am sure in a small town, and I may have more blinders on than I think. There's a good chance everybody knows who I am, but I don't necessarily think so. Uh, the big advantage is you're helping your neighbors, and so there's, that's certainly fulfilling when you, if somebody comes in with a significant disease or condition or injury, and you can help them. You certainly feel like you're contributing uh, to the community that way, and it's it's overwhelmingly positive. Sure, it, just like any of us, there are certain patients that. Uh, for a variety of reasons, are either displeased with their result or their expectations aren't met. And you don't necessarily run into them that often in town. They more likely will respect to see you in the office if they want to do that. But for the most part, it's it's overwhelmingly positive. And, you know, to see young kids grow up that you potentially treated for appendicitis or a fracture or a hernia is pretty fulfilling. So overall, I'd say it's it's positive, and I and I I would agree. When you're in a bigger center and you have anonymity, probably what you worry about more is those few times that you would have loss of anonymity in a difficult patient. But those numbers are pretty small, so it's it's certainly not a a detriment. It wouldn't be enough to keep somebody from working in a small place. But there are some small things that I mean. Good advice I got from Dave Story again was to not do parotid surgery in a small town. Yeah. Um, which I've never done because if you yeah. do get a facial nerve injury, you're going to be looking at a facial droop downtown that you're responsible for for the rest of your career. And so if they just don't like what their appendectomy scar looks like, you're not looking at it all the time and watching them carry a handkerchief. So there, you certainly have to tailor some things. I think a lot of us in Calgary really enjoyed a talk that you gave a couple years ago at our research day and uh, it was on frostbite. And you can you tell us a little bit about how your interest in this injury developed and what the scope of the problem is in Canada? Well, that's a good question. This is where you'll probably have to cut me off because I tend to go on a bit of a... I've become obsessed with frostbite. The, it, how it happened, there was no intent for me to become the frostbite guy, uh, which seems to have my 15 minutes of frostbite has gone on and on. But I recognized that I had seen a couple of cases of frostbite, and we weren't doing really anything with them. We were just waiting for them to declare, may or may not let them auto-amputate or amputate them. So I, I just assumed that people would think that we were good at treating frostbite because we're in the north, and I thought that I should find out if we should be doing anything different. And then I went down a bit of a rabbit hole because it turns out that no, nobody really was, as far as I can tell, in Canada, or at least saying that they were doing anything differently. So I, it started innocently enough. I just did a literature search, and I found that there were experts in France who were treating it quite aggressively, and some in the U.S., and I cold emailed these people all based on the emails that they would put on their journal articles, which I've since learned that most people don't answer. I eventually got hold of one Alaskan who gave me the real emails of the experts, and so um, that linked me with France. And then I got quite interested in potentially making and doing what we possibly could. So they were using a drug that's a vasodilator and also has some rheological effects on platelets as well. 
called Iloprost, and I thought, well, it'd be we should see if we can get this. I didn't realize it wasn't available in Canada, so when I asked our pharmacy, they said it wasn't available. So we innocently enough, not realizing that this tends to be an onerous process, asked for special access to use it to Health Canada. And initially, their response was quite quick and said, no, there are therapeutic alternatives available. And our pharmacist was quite crestfallen because we'd done a fair amount of work rationalizing it, sent them our literature review. And I said, well, I don't really care. Ask them what that therapeutic alternative is. Let's get that. And then we emailed them that one question. They said, oh, never mind. You can have it. So I don't know if that's their standard response initially when you ask for something special. So then we more or less um, based the protocol of how to use that drug on what they were doing in Europe. I didn't realize no one in North America had done it. So then I was encouraged to publish our first two cases, which the CMAJ was kind enough to take, which caused a bit of a storm across the country that I now get calls from all over Canada, which initially people wanted to send me patients from the South. Um, which I tried to tell them that medical transfers usually go downhill from the north to the south and not the other way around. So um, through a variety of means, me giving talks and, um, at certain national events, and I think the embarrassment of some of the bigger cities being told if they didn't take a patient and do something, they were going to send them to Whitehorse. Uh, it's kind of caught fire across the country. And so uh, more and more people, including Calgary now, have an aggressive protocol for frostbite. The the second part of your question of what the burden of disease in Canada is unknown at this point. We see two or three bad cases a year, which if you can imagine if there's two or three surgeons working, you may only see one a year, and so you don't think the problem is necessarily big enough for you to figure out if you should be doing something dif differently. So I suspect that what we need is a national registry, which I may get involved in trying to set up because there's some, there's some clear questions that need to be answered. We're currently treating the most significant frostbite grade four out of four with both a vasodilator and a thrombolytic. And there's no clear evidence that combining the two is necessary or even using the thrombolytics at all is necessary which is common in the U.S. They don't do any vasodilation. They do the thrombolytics and the big centers that treat frostbite aggressively, which is mostly Minnesota and Utah. So I think there's some questions we could answer or somebody who knows what they're doing from running trials could answer if we had a national registry, which I think would be great. Because I imagine that there's places like Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, which are big cities that have cold climates, must see a lot more frostbite than maybe they think. The advantage that we have is that we are seeing a disproportionate number of adventure athletes who may be young and healthy otherwise and are coming in with their first episode of frostbite. If you have a bit of an urban practice where you have people that live on the street, that may not be the first time they have frostbite. And, so th and those injuries, I believe, are harder to deal with if they've had secondary freezing events or yearly freezing events. So it's harder maybe to make a difference and therefore identify that you've made an intervention that can have a difference. So when you so get there's a, a lot of unanswered questions in frostbite. Sorry, that's what I mean. I could go on forever. No, it's 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 really like you said. A lot of us really found the topic totally fascinating, and uh, surprisingly, none of us had really even thought about it, even though 
Um, obviously, we live in a cold place. Can you can you walk us a little bit through um, w- like how do these patients present? Um, how how do you manage them? Kind of summarize what you talk about in that um, CMAJ article. Most of them will present within 24 hours. The main changes that are classically described with frostbite are a reperfusion injury. So the people that get the blisters, the bloody blisters, the cyanotic changes, those are usually a post-rewarming phenomenon. Uh, The people that present frozen that we have to rewarm are potentially people that have been rescued. Often they'll do or unless, which we now have a fair amount of public education in Whitehorse, so people recognize that they may have frostbite and come in. So if they're not rewarmed, we rapidly rewarm them. And then what's probably um, becoming evident in frostbite is if you are going to treat them aggressively, the next step is to try and decrease their warm ischemia time. Because the reperfusion injury that they get is appears to be vasoconstriction and thrombosis. And so they're getting an ischemic injury downstream from there. So the the earlier that you can give them either the thrombolytic or the vasodilator, or potentially both, the better. And so there's some work out of Minnesota showing that time is money in this sense, that they do better the earlier that you intervene. Possibly even earlier than you could arrange uh, if you're in a bigger center, uh, an angiographic study or uh, a bone scan, which is useful because if the bone's not perfused, then you know there's no perfusion anywhere in that digit beyond that. So we treat them aggressively. They get a five-day intravenous protocol, which is really well tolerated. So most patients, if they're ambulatory, they'll get their first course of it in hospital. They're monitored because it's a vasodilator, but we no longer admit them to the ICU. We'll often monitor them as an outpatient. Now, if they tolerate the first course, so they'll come back to the hospital They'll get their whirlpool, they'll see the physiotherapist, their dressing changes, get their six hours of an infusion, and they'll go home and do it all again the next day. So it's pretty, and it's an efficient way of treating these patients. And they're given five days of the protocol. The five day, there's no magic to the five days. It's based on what they were doing in France. Again, if we had a real study, we could figure out, do you really need to do five days? Should you do more? Should you do three? But we do five, and most people tolerate that well. The most common complication is headache, and it's usually a dose response. And often if you turn their their rate down for a little while, that'll go away, and you can get that under control. And then we follow them out to resolution, which in my experience seems to be at three weeks, you know what's going to survive and what isn't. And then the question is, if you could know sooner if you could uh, do a surgical intervention, if someone inevitably is going to have an amputation, then you would potentially save them and the system a lot of time and money by getting them healed and moved on as opposed to dealing with a chronic wound waiting for the spring for it to declare. That segues really nicely into my next question, which is where does surgery uh, fit into this pathway? Um, and how do you know when or, or do you know if someone's salvageable or not? Um, that's a good question. They, there was some evidence before people were being treated aggressively. They did some good work in France where they did a retrospect analysis of all the patients that had had bone scans. I think it was at 48 hours. And the bone perfusion accurately predicted what their ultimate amputation level would be. 
So this was before they were treating them aggressively. And that's what we're trying to change is that prediction. So you can, there is a natural history prediction that you can probably make at 48 hours of what is going to survive. What we, and I, uh, my experience with about five years of this now and over 20 cases is we're probably cutting that amputation rate or level by 50% with our aggressive treatment. So the more is going to survive. But certainly at three weeks clinically looking at them, you know what's going to survive. And then the question is, is how, where surgeons could come in at that point is how to preserve length. Because anyone that's done revision amputations of fingers or toes, the main issue is usually skin coverage. So you may have circumferential necrosis at an area, but you have to cut the bone back to get the skin to close over top, which if you go through a joint, now you've lost a significant amount of mobility and uh, usefulness. And so if there's a way of maintaining length, whether that's moving flaps or temporarily, I read an interesting article recently about temporarily embedding the fingers into the skin of the abdominal wall to revascularize the area, maintains length. So I think that as we salvage more uh, if we get really aggressive with length, then that's where surgeons could practically get more involved as well. You know, you took this protocol from France, but how, what were the iterations for you to actually develop it in Whitehorse? And and how did that, what did that look like in practice? Um, well, it was certainly an interesting journey to do that. There are a lot of, I mean, the, the protocol, all we took from elsewhere really was um, how to dose the Isloprost. Then I tried to identify what evidence there was for certain treatments. The A lot of the changes, it was an interesting journey from the history of medicine as well. For instance, um, what is the deal with the blisters? turns out in Chicago in the 80s, they aspirated 10 patients with blisters, found that there were prostaglandins within the blister fluid that they knew from plastics flaps were bad actors, thromboxanes. So they decided we should be treating these frostbite patients with an anti-thromboxane regimen, which is where aloe and ibuprofen come in because where they hit on the arachidonic pathway, they block the bad thromboxanes. So unfortunately, they made two changes. They started a protocol and they gave them both aloe and ibuprofen, didn't separate them, so and then did a large series of patients and demonstrated a decrease in their amputation rate. And so that is why everybody gives the patients ibuprofen who have frostbite. So though it's based on a large number of patients that they intervened with, it's based on just aspirating 10 patients' blisters, which is I thought was pretty fascinating. As a consequence, we give everybody ibuprofen and aloe based on that. So that's an example of everything we do for because we're in a small town and it's if we're developing a protocol that no big academic center has, we have to be careful that we're not just making this up. So everything that we do in our intervention either has evidence that it does no harm or there is actually some rationale physiologically with evidence that it works. So that includes our rapid rewarming and the temperatures we use for our rewarming and our ibuprofen and aloe vera and the isoprost. And it's it's funny creating a protocol. I've learned a lot about sometimes there are very logical ways why people do things. The best evidence that I could find was that most people were rewarming at 37 to 39 degrees. So I picked 38 when I first wrote the protocol. 
And the very first time I was in the trauma bay, we were rewarming a patient, and we have these nice little rewarming whirlpool tubs that have an external heat source, and then it's just they have a, cir- a contained circulating thing in the bottom, so you can't actually burn your feet on this. So the, I saw the nurse pour cold water. She filled the tub right from the tap in the trauma bay, and she was pouring a liter of cold water in the tub. And I said, well, what are you doing? She said, well, it comes out of the tap at 39 degrees, it turns out, and I'm trying to get it to 38. And I said, if it comes out of the tap at 39 degrees, we're changing the protocol to 39. Because <laughs> that seemed ridiculous. So you have to be careful when you're dealing with the nurses are extremely good. At, to their credit, of following a protocol. So you have to be careful what you put in your protocol. That, that, that example is so good. And it, it's just so repeatable. I mean, it happens so often, no matter what we're doing. Um, Alex, many years ago, uh, you were doing a locum um, at the Children's Hospital here doing some pediatric surgery, which again speaks to your, your broad breadth of, of talent and, and training. And and you made a comment to one of my co-residents at the time that you, you guys were doing, a, you may not remember this, but you were doing a, a growing hernia, uh, standard, straightforward, nothing special. And of course, th- this individual on this rotation had, had done a zillion of them. And you were hanging out and you said, you might know this procedure better than I do right now, but in six months, I'm going to know it a lot better than you. And that comment we all thought was interesting because it kind of spread through the the ranks and that was cool. But it's clearly more and more and more true the longer you practice. Can can you tell the listeners what you meant by that maybe? And and especially with your practice starting and stopping and starting and stopping and moving in and out of these locations, uh, you know, in terms of your your view on skill maintenance and CME and and, uh, and that whole kind of world. Well, um, I don't remember saying that, but I can imagine saying <laughs> that. Um, and it, uh, I, I haven't studied the the theory of education, but I certainly noticed as I was going through my medical training that there was a whole lot more that was just going into my short-term memory than was going into my long-term memory, and I wasn't acutely aware of it at first. Mm-hmm. And a, a pediatric hernia would be a perfect example when you've just you've you've done a couple of weeks of them, you've done a couple of days. It's a pretty easy operation. You just reach in, there's the hernia sac, and you divide it away from the cord and cord structures, and you do your high ligation and move on, and you can chat during the the procedure. And then a few months later, if you're on a different rotation, if someone gave you a pediatric hernia, you would ask yourself, oh, where did we put the incision again? Like, it would be from the start. It wouldn't even necessarily be yeah. the process of the operation. Yeah. And if you, as you know, as a surgeon, if you put your incision in the wrong place, then everything looks different from then on. And so it just snowballs. And so I think what that speaks to is that if you know what your ultimate goals are, you have to somehow recognize when something is simply, you know, wrote temporarily because you're doing it repeatedly. And if you're going to have to pull it out every now and then, then you sort of have to have an approach for how you're going to do that. Whether that's you're making notes or educating or even consciously making it into your long-term memory. When um, When I came to Whitehorse as a resident, there was no CT scanner here. And every case we dealt with in Calgary and rounds, we were often talking about the CT scans. And I can remember as a resident, we'd be reviewing the CT scan and I would consciously say to myself, what if I'm in Whitehorse and we don't have a scan? How am I going to deal with this issue? So I was making plans for that. 
And of course, when I came to Whitehorse as a staff, they just bought the CT scanner. So all those plans were perhaps for naught unless the CT occasionally goes down, which does happen. But um, I think you have to you have to recognize that it's going to happen. And it's certainly easier now with online resources. If you don't have your textbooks, you can look something up. I remember being amazed um, sitting with a plastic surgeon at the Children's when I was a resident, and they were asking me that day what cases we had for their elective list. And I asked them at what point did they no longer check the list obsessively because they wanted to see if they needed to look up how to do something. And I think they said about 10 years, which seems about right. But unfortunately for my practice, there's so many things that I do infrequently or have to as I uh, recently stated, I'm a high-volume, low-volume surgeon. I do a lot of operating of stuff that I don't necessarily do often. So there's still things that I will look up. What I found particularly useful as a resident was to save all my dictations. Because a resident dictation of meticulously how to do a thyroidectomy would still be useful to me if I had it now for the steps of the operation. So I don't know if that answered the question, but those yeah, no, there's so much insight and wisdom in, in terms of what you just said. It's uh, it's perfect. The the other thing I, I was wondering if you talked to us about is a, a couple of years ago, give or take, you went over to Australia and, and hung out, um, giving a talk to our colorful and absolutely fantastic colleagues in Darwin, Australia, way up the north side, north tip there. Um, and, and they asked you to come and talk about, I think initially polar bear injuries, but uh, I'm sure your talk was more broad than that. Can you tell us about that and what, what your some of the content yeah. of the talk was? Well, that was fascinating for a variety of reasons. And thank you, Chad. You're the one that um, suggested me to them. And um, I think we, we both enjoyed the experience, myself and the Australians. So that was for the 50th Annual Provincial Surgeons of Australia meeting. And that's their term for rural or remote surgeons as provincial surgeons, which was telling from the start. Because um, I don't think we've ever had a one in Canada. And I was at their 50th. Yeah, so exactly. I thought, I thought that was telling for their support of rural and yeah. remote surgery. Now, they wanted me to talk. They were fascinated with bear attacks. So I was coming from the Yukon. They wanted me to talk about bear attacks. So when, so I looked it up. And in the whole country, and the Yukon's numbers are similar, we have a fatal bear attack every two years on average. So in a decade, there would be five. So the, the the numbers are pretty pretty low. And the day I landed in Darwin, the newspaper on the front page of the newspaper was that some local fishermen had been eaten by a crocodile. So their crocodiles are way more dangerous than our bears. So of course I'm giving this was a, a pretty august gathering of the uh, the surgeons on Australia, and it turns out it was also their royal college meeting. So the city surgeons were there too. So I didn't want to go talk off the cuff. So I decided to uh, look into our data. So I had our medical records people in uh, Whitehorse who were very good at tracking um, all the admissions to the hospital, eMERGE and otherwise, or even the, just the people that pass through the emergency department. So they pulled up all codes that involved animals presenting to our emergency department. And so I gathered the data on animal injuries and I wanted mammal, large mammal injuries in the Yukon. And I was pretty sure I was going to tell the Australians that the, by far the most dangerous mammal in the Yukon was the moose, which I assumed was from car crashes into moose. 
Right. Because the moose has been destri- has been designed to destroy a car. Yeah, exactly. It's extremely top heavy. It's tall. You take the legs out of it, they fall in your lap. So they're a danger. So I looked this up, and there are at least two moose for every human in the Whitehorse in in the the Yukon. So there are a lot of moose. There are about six thousand bears, I believe, in the Yukon. So I was pretty sure it was going to be the moose. So I went through the data, and turns out we have about. I think it's a thousand bison and twelve hundred domestic horses. And what shocked me was that horses were by far the largest number of injuries. Even when I then went through the charts and screened out the people that had simply fallen off a horse, or rather they'd say in Calgary, thrown off a horse, just from attacks, either being kicked or bitten, the horse was overwhelmingly a higher number than bear than moose traffic accidents or even bison gorgings that we have in the Yukon. So it turns out that by far, they had a much lower number. This is not this is sheer absolute numbers, and they have one-tenth of the population of the large mammals, the horses. So unquestionably, the most dangerous large mammal in the Yukon is the horse, huh, which awesome. you should worry about that, Chad, because you're in Calgary. You're right in the thick yeah. of it. Yeah, exactly, hey? Well, we've, we've certainly published a few papers on equestrian injuries, and it's it's always interesting to 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 hear from riders, you know, why, why they got injured. And it, certainly, the the more experienced the the rider was, or the equestrian was, the more often they blamed the the injury on themselves as opposed to the animal, which always fascinated me. It's yeah. it's it's funny. We, you know, if you if you when you think back at your top ten sort of injury stories, one of my very favorite ones, without question, in Calgary here was a. A guy the, that uh, that came in as a what we call a level one. So and you remember this, uh, you know, hypotensive, super sick, come now sort of thing. And the 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 page which has of course limited uh, limited texting uh, um, characters on it had said uh, gunshot, blunt, and bear. I was like, what the heck? Is this? <laughs> so this the, this poor guy, of course, who should remain nameless, uh, was out. Uh, uh, hunting deer with his uh, one day previous father-in-law, like just brand new, so like, sort of like the honeymoon. And uh, long story short, they they uh, they shot the deer and they were tracking it. And the one guy gets uh, attacked by this bear, and the son-in-law hears the kerfuffle and comes flying around the corner and sees this bear on top of his new father-in-law and decides to start <laughs> shooting him. So it was just uh, the you know the both the guys were great. They were straight out of a comic book, and man, he did he did fine, but. Um, yeah, some of these stories are, are fantastic. That is awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff. But let me ask you, maybe in closing, uh, Alex. You know, it, it certainly sounds like, and I, I didn't know this about you, but it certainly sounds like you were thinking about this sort of career path uh, as a remote surgeon really early and and addressing it. Um, you know, as you went through your training pathway. But what what sort of advice would you have for a, you know a general surgical resident maybe who wants to pursue uh, some of the things that 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 you've done? Um, in general? Well, that's a good question. I think to have this sort of practice, you do have, it's be hard to live in an academic center. So I think first you'd have to want to live in an area in either the north or more remotely in the south. And then I would just follow your passions. You have to really enjoy what you're doing. Get as broad-based an education as you can. And even if you don't, have rotations. Like, I'm not sure they do plastics rotations or neurosurgery rotations or orthopedic rotations or general internal medicine, which were all invaluable to me, and I use many of them daily, if not weekly. 
um, you can ask questions. You can be interested. You can poke your head into a case and see what's going on, and it'll build from there. And if you're interested, there certainly are ways of designing your practice to get continuing medical education. I think before you returned, Chad, I took a month and I, I hadn't operated on a liver trauma for a long time. So I just hung out in Calgary and scrubbed on hepatobiliary cases for a month, a few years back. And just little things like you can that to perk up your uh, experience and skill set is invaluable. So I think if you're interested in what you're doing and you want to live in a smaller area, then uh, I'm, I'm sure it can still be done. And if you know where you're going to go and you need to tailor it to that, then that's fair enough. You can just pick up the skills that they're asking for either before or after. There's no rush. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's an amazing uh, comment. And I think it's something that we've heard with a lot of our guests, whether they've been, you know, iconic, famous American trauma surgeons or whether they've been military surgeons or, or now from you, remote surgeons, that, you know, we shouldn't probably be um, bashful about asking our colleagues um, to maybe help us update our training or, or to show interest with them. Because I think, uh, you know, almost almost across the board, general surgeons as a culture, um, you know, we, we love that. And, and uh, we get as much out of it as, as, uh, as the person that's, that's helping us update our skills, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people are, su- people are supportive. I mean, because of COVID, I had to learn how to do my first tensor fascial lata flap for a big trochanteric ulcer last week because I just couldn't send the patient anywhere. Huh. And the response I got from the plastic surgeon, Duncan Nickerson, who you know well sure, probably, sure. was when I, I asked him what this patient needed and he said they need a TFL flap. And he said, but I can't take them because if it's COVID, and then he paused and he goes, but you've self-taught much more complicated stuff than that before. Why don't you spend a week and learn how to do it and do it? And so with his help remotely, I learned how to do it. We did it and saved the patient a lot of time and grief and closed his wound. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.com dot cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on twitter at can j surge thanks again <laughs>